A mom, not this one, had just put her little boy to bed for the umpteenth time, and her patience was running low. When she heard him cry, Mama, again, she yelled to him, If I hear you say Mama one more time, I'm going to spank you. For a little while, all was quiet, and then she heard a little voice say, Mrs. Green, may I, can I have a drink? (laughs) Identity is what I'm thinking about this morning. Identity, who are you? To answer that question, I could say I am Brian's wife, I am Noah and Lauren's mom, I am pastor of Calvary Baptist Church, And all of these responses are true, but not one of them answers directly the deeper question of identity that today's text asks. Luke, the gospel writer, tells us that Jesus and John the Baptist were kin. And if so, I suspect they had their share of playful memories. Over Christmas, I had a chance to see some of my extended family, and one of my cousins told me that when she was little, our uncle would pick her up and set her on top of the refrigerator and walk out of the kitchen. And she's 60 now and remembers this. (laughs) Kinfolk play pranks on each other and sometimes misunderstand each other and sometimes disagree. So think about that in relation to John here in the wilderness, southeast of Jerusalem, preaching a message of repentance and baptizing those who choose to change their behaviors and perhaps their identities. Jesus, on the north side of the country in Galilee, leaves his home and heads south to find John baptizing at the Jordan River. Maybe there was a line of people waiting to be baptized, and Jesus quietly finds the end and begins the slow walk forward until John encounters Jesus. Was this a family prank? Matthew tells us that John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. In plain English, Jesus is saying, According to God, this is what needs to happen. Brett Younger notes that while three Gospels tell the story of Jesus' baptism, only Matthew records this curious conversation prior to the baptism. Jesus is eager to be baptized, but John hesitates. So they stand maybe hip deep in the river and engage in this fervent theological debate concerning who should baptize whom. The first time that Jesus speaks in Matthew's gospel, it is to say that he needs to be baptized. It's as if he's saying that baptism will help him learn who he is meant to be. 
Jesus leans back into the water because he believes that God is calling him to a different kind of life. And when Jesus stands up, the waters of the Jordan dripping down his face, he sees the Spirit descending like a dove to rest upon his soggy head. The Spirit comes not as an all-consuming fire of judgment, but with the flutter of hopeful wings. And a voice says, You are my child. I love you. I'm delighted with you. Matthew gives us echoes of Isaiah. From the first verse of today's passage, chapter 42, Here is my servant, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Matthew now has told us who Jesus is. In his biography, what we call the gospel, Matthew begins with Jesus' ancestry, his genealogy. And so we have that to help us understand Jesus' identity. But otherwise, Matthew gives us only the briefest story of Jesus' birth, the visit of the Magi, and Jesus' family's escape to Egypt, and then after that, their settlement in Galilee. But now, here at the river, his identity is made clear. Jesus is God's beloved child on whom God's spirit rests. This baptism has just launched his public ministry. In the movie, The King's Speech, which is currently showing at the Grandin Theater, Prince Albert, who will become known as George VI, King George VI, is preparing for his coronation. A stammer has plagued him since childhood, challenging him to find and use his own voice, especially now that he will be king. If you know or remember the story, he was the second son, so never expected to be king, but his older brother abdicated the throne, and all of a sudden it was going to be his. Prince Albert has engaged the help of Lionel Logue, a somewhat brazen Australian, to help him conquer the stammer. The two of them are alone in the movie in Westminster Abbey on the eve of the coronation when Mr. Logue sits on the lone wooden chair in the center of the dais, the coronation throne. And the man who would be king said, get, get up, you, you can't sit there, get up. Why not? It's just a chair. The, the, that, that is St. Edward's chair. People have carved their names on it. Well, listen to me, listen to me. Why should I waste my time listening to you? Because I have a voice. Yes, you do. It's as if he first, he, he finally discovered that he had a voice and he was worth listening to. 
At Jesus' baptism, we hear his voice for the first time announcing what we must do. John immerses him in the river, and like Prince Albert becoming King George VI, Jesus comes forth empowered with a new identity. Baptism is a beginning and inauguration. In the Baptist tradition, when we make a conscious decision to follow Jesus as our Lord, we are baptized. We are immersed in the water. We are cleansed. We, are, we symbolically die and are resurrected to begin our ministry, which then unfolds in the days and the decades that follow. Brett Younger said that baptisms, like most beginnings, find meaning long after the event. Beginning is often easy, while finishing is often hard. The significance of any decision takes a while to emerge. Moments of initiation are meaningless until we are true to the promise of that beginning. We're handed a map, but then we have to take the trip. It takes our whole journey, it takes our whole lives to finish the journey we begin when we're baptized. The passage in Isaiah is another clue to us that the trip is not easy. This is the first among four passages that are called suffering servant passages. Imagine a person who will bring forth justice to the nations. So imagine justice in Korea. Imagine justice in Afghanistan, in Haiti, in Sudan, in Roanoke. Imagine a person who will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Someone who is working quietly and steadily. Imagine someone who works also gently. For those who are bruised, he will not break. And those who are weary, he will help carry their burden. Verse 3 says, He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And this justice will happen because God says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. And this justice will happen when God's servants open the eyes that are blind, bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. James Dobson reports seeing a sign on a convent in Southern California which read, Absolutely no trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. It was signed by the Sisters of Mercy. (laughs) 
Walter Brueggemann has suggested that the identity of the servant of whom Isaiah speaks could be anyone. Traditionally, Christians have seen Isaiah pointing to Jesus of Nazareth as the fulfillment of this prophecy, but Brueggemann invites us to broaden that perspective, even to see ourselves as the servant. The servant is empowered by God to bring about something new, to bring about justice with mercy. We act with God's power through small acts of kindness or large ones, through giving voice to those who have been silenced, through caring for those whose lives feel dim or broken. I didn't read till this morning Leonard Pitt's article from Thursday's Renote Times. It says blacks need to tell their story. And he talks about having been to Auschwitz and encountering the many Jewish children who were there discovering uh, information about their heritage, about the Holocaust. And he encourages then African Americans in, in the United States to tell their story to make sure that it gets passed along, to make sure that we really understand what their history has been. And he says, if we don't tell our stories, someone else will. That's his concluding line. If we don't tell our stories, someone else will. Calvary Baptist Church has a story. It's a story of love. It's a story of openness. It's a story of acceptance. It's a story of struggle, of pain, of trying to become community, of trying to understand people who are different from us, of trying to become a body of Christ. We have a story, and it's not finished yet, and we are a part of that story. We have a voice, a voice that is worth hearing. And I want us to to remember Prince Albert becoming King George VI. I want us to remember Leonard Pitts reminding the African-American community to tell their story. We also have a story that is worth hearing. We have a voice. We have an identity that was given to us at our baptism as individuals and as a congregation. And no matter our age, no matter our weariness, no matter our uncertainty, God empowers us to find our voice and to offer it on God's behalf. God empowers us to trudge through the suffering part of service so that we too can help Jesus fulfill all righteousness. God empowers us to reach out to our neighborhood and offer justice, which Isaiah tells us will transform the world into something new, something better, something divine, because it is God-inspired and God-created. Some of you have followed ACC basketball and know the name Jim Falvano. He was the basketball coach at North Carolina State and uh, read this story originated in Sports Illustrated um, 
about him looking back on his life, and he told a story about himself as a 23-year-old coach. So the very beginning of his career, a coach of a small college team, and the players asked him, why is winning so important to you? And he responded to their question, because the final score defines you. You lose, ergo, you're a loser. You win, ergo, you're a winner. And the players insisted that that's not the way it was, that participation is what matters, they said. Trying your best, regardless of whether you win or lose, that's what defines you. And Gary Smith reported that it took 24 more years of living. It took the coach bolting up from the mattress three or four times a night with his T-shirt soaked with sweat and his teeth rattling from the fever chill of chemotherapy and the terror of seeing himself die repeatedly in his dreams. It took all that for him to say, those kids were right. It's effort, not result. It's trying. And he laments, God, what a great human being I could have been if I'd had this awareness back then. We can learn from Jim Valvano. We can learn from our mistakes. We can learn from the people who have built this church over the last 120 years and be the voice that people need, the voice of grace, the voice of truth, the voice of light, and the voice of hope. Let us pray for God's effort, God's willingness to work with us to help find our voices and know that it's worth the effort. May we pray. Lord our God, we fail you again and again. We make our mistakes and we apologize for them. Would you hear our confessions? Know, O God, that we seek to do better. Know that we recognize that there is a darkness within each of us that you seek to enlighten. So dig out those dark spaces, we pray, O God. Dig them out and place your light and your hope and your grace within us so that the voices that we bring forth would be voices of light and grace and hope and faith and love. These things we pray in the name of our faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.